Mormon Stories Podcast depends entirely upon the voluntary contributions of you, its listeners. To keep Mormon Stories alive, please consider donating today at mormonstories.org. To make a contribution to Mormon Stories, just click on the Make a Donation button at the top right of the mormonstories.org website. Also, please help us promote Mormon Stories via dig.com and sustained.org. For all this and more, please check out mormonstories.org. And thank you for listening. Thank you for tuning in to Mormon Stories Podcast. In part two of our five-part series on Mormon fundamentalist polygamy, we continue our interview today with Ann Wild, Mormon fundamentalist, polygamist, and the founder of Principal Voices, a Mormon fundamentalist advocacy group. As we mentioned in part one, Ann Wild has been a Mormon fundamentalist for over 30 years and participated in a polygamous marriage for virtually all of that time until her husband's death. In this episode, Anne discusses the rise of Mormon fundamentalism as a result of the LDS Church's renunciation of several early key church doctrines, including the teaching of polygamy or celestial marriage. Anne discusses her view on how President John Taylor of the LDS Church commissioned several individuals to continue secretly the practice of polygamy and how the major polygamous sects have evolved from this early commission. Your story today on Mormon Stories. This revelation you talk about that John Tater received, did you say 1886? Uh Uh-huh. Tell us again what that revelation was and where it's recorded. Okay, Um, well, there is a copy of it in John Tater's own handwriting. And it has been put out in pamphlets and booklets that fundamentalists have put out. But the story is that he gave, a, there were five copies of it, and they passed, uh, passed down. One of them went to his son, John W. Taylor. And uh, apparently, from what I understand, there is an original copy of it in the church archives or church first presidency safe. So there is a uh, way that you can trace it, but um, the church calls it a spurious revelation. Marky Peterson certainly did. But we as fundamentalists believe that it was an actual revelation and very important in knowing what the desires of the Lord were to us to keep that doctrine alive. T- remind us what it says again, just one last time. Um, well, it just said, you use your free agency in these matters. And can I? Re- it was an eternal law, and can I revoke an eternal law? No, he could not. And he said he wouldn't. So based on that, we have that, we feel like we have the right and the authority and the commission to keep on living that doctrine. Okay. So from your point of view, John Taylor was a true prophet until the end. Absolutely. Which yeah. sort of sets up, I imagine, Wilford Woodruff to be sort of the guy that maybe fell fell off the... Um, well, you know, some fundamentalist Mormons are quite critical of him. I choose to um, feel like he was there for a reason, and he um, did what was best for the church, and he himself knew that this could be continued as a priesthood law, 
But when the majority of the people themselves didn't want to live this, I mean, when that was presented in the tabernacle or wherever it was that it was presented at conference time in early October of 1890, um, the re- report is that, of course, that everybody voted for it. Well, there were some that did not. But a lot of the, <clears throat> excuse me, a lot of the members of the church at that time were relieved to have that burden. They considered it a burden. Uh, lifted from them. They didn't have that responsibility or requirement to live it anymore. So that was fine with the majority of the church, and I feel like President Woodruff was acting in their behalf. Were there apostles that opposed adamantly the the decision? Oh, I'm sure there were. Um, There was Matthias Cowley and John W. Tater, which were two that were disfellowshipped and excommunicated um, from the quorum in an effort to show the government that church meant business, that they were going to handle those people that took more wives. Um, B.H. Roberts, there's the account of him sitting on the stand, and when it was put to a vote, he says, I could not vote for it. It was the awfulest day of my life. And his hand, he just couldn't raise it in favor of it. Mm. So I'm sure there were people in the audience that either didn't vote or maybe a few that voted against it, but you don't have too many records of that other than in journals. Okay. So it sounds like they had some behind-the-scenes discussion and decided consciously we're going to publicly state a position that we're going to stop it, but we are going to continue the practice. As a priesthood law, not as a church law. So there's a separation of priesthood. Talk talk about that for a second. Well, I think I mentioned that, that that John Tater uh, called men the next day after he received this revelation and appointed men to keep this principle alive and to see that not a year passed that a child was not born in plural marriage. So that was passed down uh, through men that were appointed with the authority and the calling to keep that alive. But that's that's probably something that the LDS Church would deny ever happened. I probably would imagine. Uh huh. Okay. Yeah. So that's that's through journals or through personal accounts. That, yeah. That that yeah. version. There's, to, in my way of looking at it, there's enough evidence for me to believe that. Okay. So there's a separation of, of priesthood from the church in some aspects, which is well, would be foreign for a member of the LDS Church to think about because they think of them as completely intertwined. I know, and that's not the way we look at it at all. If you look back on the history of the church, in 1829 the Aaronic priesthood was restored to Joseph Smith. This is um, probably a year before the church was organized in 1830. And even though we don't have the exact date of the restoration of the Melchizedek priesthood, uh, it's common belief, except I know Michael Quinn feels like the restoration of the Melchizedek Priesthood came after 1830. But let's just say for the sake of argument, because that's what most people believe and the church teaches, that both priesthoods were restored before 1830. Well, there was no church, and yet there was priesthood. Right. So that proves that you can, that priesthood can exist separate from the church. Right. So I feel like as long as the church is obeying and adhering to priesthood laws and ordinances, then there are men that naturally hold that priesthood. But if they do away with the priesthood laws, then um, then I feel like that those laws can be lived separate from the church as a law of the priesthood. Okay. So at some point there was sort of a fork where the church, the official church, ended it and stopped it and realized they had to really cut it off. But it continued. Well, it's just like, when does it get dark? You know, the sun just (laughs) gradually goes down. I think it's that way with plural marriage. There were people that kept on living it long past 1904. Uh, So it wasn't all of a sudden the church no longer practiced plural marriage. 
okay. the, because there were individuals in it that kept on living it. So talk about how it how it continued, uh, you know, through the mid nineteen hundreds to today. I mean, what, what's its okay. genealogy? <laughs> okay, historically? well, depends on who you ask as to how to how to trace that. <clears throat> but I can say generally that, like I say, John Taylor set aside, set apart men to keep plural marriage alive. Those men, one of them was Lauren C. Woolley. And then when, and there was um, George Q. Cannon, Daniel Bateman, Charles Wilkin, uh, Joseph F. Smith was called back from his mission in Hawaii, and he was given that commission. So there were five. Joseph F. Smith. Joseph F. Smith, who became the sixth president of the church. Hmm. The, these men were commissioned to keep plural marriage alive, and actually this was a secretive thing. It's, you're not going to read that in church history, but it's <laughs> definitely in some of the the, the journal entries and uh, information that's been passed down through fundamentalist Mormons. Okay. Okay, so these men then, uh, they began dying off. I mean, they kept that principle alive, from what I understand, and then until Lauren Woolley, who was a bodyguard at the uh, Centerville House, where John Taylor received this revelation, he was the only remaining member of that um, group of men that was commissioned to keep plural marriage alive. So he, uh, according to our information, um, called six other men so that they would have a council of sorts or enough men to keep this principle alive. And so just briefly, so it was Lauren Woolley, he called Joseph Broadbent, John Y. Barlow, Joseph Musser, Legrand Woolley, um, Charles Zitting and Lewis Kelch. Then, gradually, those men began to die off, but when Joseph Musser was the senior member of that council, there became a split, and that's where uh, he called Ruin Allred and Owen Allred and some of the other brethren to start a new council. That's where the Allred group came from, called Apostolic United Brethren. And then some of the others in the original council, like John Y. Barlow, um, he wanted to call um, Leroy Johnson and Marion Hammond. And so there was a lot of confusion. I don't know if I need to go into too much detail here, but that's how the FLDS down in Short Creek got started, is that they started with Roy Johnson and Marion Hammond, and then later they were just called the community at Short Creek. Later on, they formed what's called the Fundamentalist Church of Latter-day Saints, and they are now known as FLDS. After Leroy Johnson, it was uh, Ruland Jeffs. Ruland Jeffs' son took over after, um, well, even before Ruland died, and that's Warren Jeffs, and that's the one that people know all about today. So that's kind of the history of that group, and then the Allred group started with Joseph Musser, and then there have been other groups that have come up because um, their main difference pretty much is Differences in claims of authority, you know, priesthood authority. But so today we have the two major groups that I mentioned to you, and then we also have Centennial Park. Uh, there's um, a community of about 1,500 that were separated from the Short Creek group. And then we have the Davis County Co-op or the Kingston group. They have about 1,500 in their community. And they're spread around, uh, interspersed in Salt Lake Valley and elsewhere. And then uh, we have uh, smaller groups as well. And then I can't forget the independents, <laughs> because uh, those people who are fundamentalist Mormons um, and do not belong to a group, we term ourselves uh, independents. 
And But we all kind of fall under the generic term of fundamentalist Mormons because as compared to liberal Mormons or orthodox or feminist Mormons, we are the fundamentalist Mormons because we believe in the fundamental or early teachings and doctrines of the church. We still like to be called Mormons because after all we do believe in Joseph Smith who established the Mormon church and we believe in the Book of Mormon. And um, in fact, we don't go along with the changes that have taken place throughout the last hundred and so, sure, hundred and sure. whatever years. So this is an interesting notion. So several men were called um, to, to continue the practice, Joseph F. Smith being one of them. Yet he ultimately became prophet. So at some point he must have stopped encouraging, or I don't know if he ever started. Well, there's an occasion where I read in a journal where he performed two plural marriages in southern Utah and then went back to Salt Lake or came back here and delivered a very fiery sermon against it. So it's just another case of them doing one thing privately right. and another th- and saying another thing publicly. Right. Um, but at some point, whoever became the apostles and prophets of the LDS Church, they had to have... They had to have sort of stop supporting it, but I wonder well, if they publicly were... they did. We don't know what happened privately. Oh, so th- do we have a sense for whether they were aware of the polygamy that is being practiced oh, in I'm the tens, twenties, thirties, forties? I'm sure they realized there were some because they were cutting people off the church. If so, it was found that they had more than one wife, people were excommunicated from the church. So they knew very well that it was still going on. But do you have a sense for whether they were sad that they had to do that, or were they? I don't know what they what, felt. So there's just yeah, because they. I felt I think that because of their position, they felt like they were doing what they had to do because of the beliefs of the church. Right. Okay. So if if the priesthood is the essential thing here in terms of the practice being continued. How do you know when the priesthood is valid and validly hand down versus not validly hand down? It sounds like some of these sects disagree as to who has the authority and who doesn't. Correct. Uh The LDS Church stems from the same line of authority, at least at some point. Mm -hmm. So what's your view or what are Fundamentalist Mormons' view on when when is priesthood authority valid and when isn't it? Okay, well... One, two thoughts come to mind in answer to that question. For one thing, in the 1930s, President Heber J. Grant said, you know, I don't think it's necessary for us to continue conferring priesthood and then ordaining to an office. So he said, we're not going to do that anymore. We're just going to ordain to an office. So for 36 years, until President McKay became president of the church, they were not conferring priesthood, Aaronic or Melchizedek. They were just ordaining to an office in whichever priesthood it was. President McKay came along and said, whoops, we should have been conferring priesthood all this time. So he went back to it, and I have copies of the bishop's handbook where it had the wording for one and then the wording for the other, and then the wording became, okay, we confer you to the priesthood of Aaron and ordain you to the office of deacon, Mm -hmm. whatever one. Um, So one question arises then. If a man was ordained to the office of a, in the priesthood during that 36-year period, does he really have priesthood? Because he did not confer it. He did not have it conferred correctly. Mm-hmm. That's just a question, you know, I sure, pose out sure. there. Um, another one is, in determining whether somebody has priesthood, I think if they obey priesthood laws and don't fight against true priesthood laws, then chances are they have priesthood if it was conferred properly. Hmm. Yeah, this notion of getting the Aaronic or Melchizedek 
Melchizedek priesthood separate from the office. I haven't even ever considered that. No, I, I have the actual so, photographs of the quotes from the bishops. But they weren't chambers. separate blessings, were they? Or no, it, the, the way that President McKay changed it back to was we confer upon you the priesthood of Aaron or the Melchizedek priesthood and ordain you to the office of. That was all in the same blessing. So, okay. So how would we sort out the fact that various fundamentalist sects, if, if we can call them sects, deny each other's authority? How do we know what... Well, that's their free agency. How, how, but, I mean, do you view all the authority as valid? How do we know what authority is valid? <laughs> well, that's got to be an individual testimony. There are people in the, all those groups, that they have their own testimony that the leader of that particular group has priesthood authority. I respect that. And But my testimony is that I do feel like there's priesthood authority out there, but I have never been impressed to join any of the groups. I know people in all the groups. I love and respect them, their decisions. Uh, I'm friends with them, and that's why they're members of groups and members that are, uh, are people that are not members. That's a free agency choice. But it's pretty and safe to say they all deny the validity of each other's. Each sect denies the validity of other sects. In, in most authority. cases, I think, yeah. Like somebody in the all red group is not going to recognize the priesthood in FLDS, for example. Right. Okay. Well, just like the LDS church doesn't recognize the priesthood authority of the Catholic church either. Or of any other church. Yeah. Right. Um, so in your tradition, or in your belief system, how is authority handed down? Then? Um, or is it? Yeah, it has to be conferred correctly. My husband had it conferred on him uh, properly by somebody in authority, and I definitely feel like he had the priesthood and had the right to exercise that priesthood. I saw evidence of it. Um, it's just as an individual, but it has to be conferred by somebody who has who conferred has on him. Yeah. But that doesn't necessarily have to come through a group, in my estimation. So... Let's uh, let's transition just a tiny bit and talk about um, the the beliefs of fundamentalist Mormons. Um, you know, when when President Hinckley's interviewed by Larry King, he says polygamy is not doctrinal. When the church comes out with a press release, it seems like an attempt is made to distance the church as completely and as thoroughly as possible from these, you know, fundamentalist Mormons. In fact, the church doesn't even want them to be called Mormons. I, I understand that. So I feel like we have the right to label ourselves. Um, and with all due respect, you know, I can see where he's coming from, and I know why he wants to distance it. I mean, you don't send out 50,000 missionaries all over the world and then have any connection to polygamy because it affects their proselyting program. So I understand that. In fact, we make every effort in the media interviews we've had that we distinguish ourselves from the mainstream church because we don't want them to associate the two. We live it as an early LDS church doctrine, but we do it now separate like I've explained before. Um, it was interesting during the Olympics in 2002, we had media from all over the world come into the Salt Lake Valley. And the joke was, we know a lot of the, the um, local media, and so these me media reporters would come in, oh, well, where are the venues and where are the polygamists? Because they automatically associated Utah with polygamy, the LDS Church with polygamy, and that really isn't accurate, but that's what outside people have associated. So when they come and have interviews with us, we made that distinction that we live it now as a law of the priesthood separate from the law of the church. Right. So let's just, 
you know, I've always been a little bit uncomfortable with the degree to which the attempts have been made to distance ourselves. It's almost like there's there's a sense of being ashamed or that that these people are unclean. You know, what I want to do is talk about um, the beliefs that that a traditional member of the LDS Church and a fundamentalist share. So let's start okay. right at the very top and enumerate for us in a stream of consciousness <laughs> all the beliefs that we share. Well, I'd say the Articles of Faith, the Four Standard Works, um, all the early all the early teachings of the church that Joseph Smith and Brigham Young and John Taylor taught. Um, I think the church believed in those, but they believe in them more as an historical thing now. And so uh, my husband and I wrote 65 books. Uh, my husband was Ogden Kraut, and uh, we wrote 65 books on church history and doctrine. And one of the books is called 95 Thesis. And in that book is a compilation of quotes on 95 different doctrines and ordinances of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, or of the Gospel, and how they have evolved and changed over the years. And so let's consider just a few of them on uh, how they've changed. Uh, Gathering of Israel, the Church no longer preaches gathering. They say, stay in the countries where you are. Rebaptism is another one. They don't... uh, believe in rebaptism anymore. Brigham Young was rebaptized seven times. He said every time he passed a stream of water, he had the desire to be baptized and have a clean start. Um, the ordination of 70s, the position of 70s, they no longer have 70s in the stakes. Uh, the position of patriarch has changed. Uh, that is an emeritus position now, and uh, the the power and, pr- and position of the patriarch has changed drastically through the years. Um, yeah, I could just go on and on, you know, with the doctrines that have changed. So, uh, fundamentalist Mormons believe in the the way those doctrines were taught in the early days of the church, and not the way that they have been changed uh, to what they are teaching now. So you believe in God, you believe in Jesus, Absolutely. the Holy Ghost. You Absolutely. believe in the Book of Mormon, uh, Bible, yeah. Jesus, the atonement. Absolutely. Uh, that Joseph Smith was a prophet of God that he was given the priesthood, that, that God told him to start the church? Absolutely. Um, uh, you believe in eternal marriages, obviously. <laughs> I, I hope so. <laughs> I'm not doing this just for fun and games. <laughs> and, and you believe in priesthood. Um, talk a little bit about temple work. Do you believe in uh, proxy work for the dead and the endowment? I, we did. Uh, when the temple work was first started, we believed that there had been changes made in the temple. In 1990, there was drastic changes made in the temple ceremony itself. Uh, so we believe in temple work, yes, but the temples are not open to us right now because people that practice and live plural marriage do not belong to the church and don't get temple recommends. So um, even though we might believe that that's, when it's in order, that's definitely a good thing, we do not have access to temples right now. So is that something you feel sad about, regret? Do you wish you could? No, because I feel like so many things are out of order right now that um, I am waiting for the promise that's given in this section 85 of the Doctrine and Covenants where it says that the house of God will be set in order. And when that time comes, then um, I think temples will be set in order as well, and that uh, the righteous people will be able to take advantage of that. that, That's actually interesting, because we're sort of taught that every dispensation has, you know, God's hand and direction in it, and God's true prophet. 
were taught that there was an apostasy after Jesus right. left the earth, that the church was created um, to sort of um, to be the last organization before the second coming of Christ, to usher in the millennium. Right. And I, first of all, I'm not aware of any revelation or talk about the church falling into apostasy itself. It seems like you kind of believe that. Um, well, we dare, very definitely believe this. Well, how can something be set in order unless it's first out of order? And if we believe in the Doctrine and Covenants, Section 85 says the house of God will be set in order. Now, the house of God is not just the church. It's the whole thing. It's the kingdom of God. It's everything. The kingdom of God and the LDS Church are two separate things. That's another difference that we have. What, the what, church what is the kingdom of God? believes in the kingdom of God and the church is being the same thing. I, what is the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God is a political kingdom and it includes all churches. And it was set up, uh, Joseph Smith restored that in uh, 1843 when he set up the Council of Fifty. And that was a, that council that was a governing body that kind of uh, helped the, the pioneers come out here to the valley. It was under that organization. Brigham Young was at the head of it. But it's two separate organizations from the LDS Church. One's ecclesiastical, the other's political. And the kingdom of God is the political mm -hmm. one? Okay. And you still believe... And much more encompassing than just the LDS Church. So when it says the house of God will be set in order, then that includes the church, but is not exclusive of it. Okay. And this kingdom of God notion you still, you still believe in? Absolutely. Yeah. So Ogden, uh, we wrote a book, three books, called The Kingdom of God. And it traces the whole history and the pre-existence. And then the second volume is from Adam to Christ. And then the third bottom is from, volume is from Christ to today. And how that kingdom is defined and functions. So what's kept you what, What's kept you guys from building your own temples and performing the ordinances in the, in the temple? Well, I understand one or two of the groups have done that. I, I don't feel like that's something that I should be concerned with. Okay. Personally. And and have you have you thought to wonder why God um, hasn't continued having a prophet on the earth today? Why he's sort of withdrawn that? From, well, from you look back through history, and like you say, there was an apostasy after Christ. There's always in every dispensation, there's been a restoration or an establishment of true principles, and then there's been a falling away. And I don't think our dispensation is any different. It's a tough period of time. But Hebrew C. Kimball prophesied, he says, and there will be a test, a test, a test, and who will be able to stand? I think, in our opinion, he was talking about the test of deception. And and that's an important gift right now, is to be able to, or, um, to discern. The gift of discernment is important, to know where the truth is and what true principles you should live right now. Because sure. sometimes it means you have to decide whether you want to stay a member of the church or if you want to live eternal principles. Mm. Now, the term fundamentalist seems to sort of indicate that that once something's set up, it, it can't change, that it shouldn't change. Well, eternal by definition means unchanging, never stopping, ongoing. You define that word itself. It doesn't mean that it's true one minute and then not true the next. But So if it's an eternal principle, it doesn't mean man can stop it. They can stop it as far as their acceptance of it. Right. But the, the principle will go on being true. But I'm sure you'd acknowledge that there, there were lots of changes in the Old Testament on how uh, things were practiced. And then there's a but huge... But practices and eternal principles are two different things. 
So help me out with that. Okay. Uh, they weren't supposed to take more than how many steps on the Sabbath. Right. Well, that's a practice. Okay. That's not an eternal principle. Noah was commanded to build an ark. That doesn't mean it's an eternal principle and we all run out and build an ark. Right. So you have to separate the practices from an eternal principle. Okay. It's the eternal principles that don't change. So, for example, between Old Testament, Judaic law, and New Testament, you don't think there were any principles that changed? Well, Christ said he came to fulfill the law. And, you know, I guess we'd have to take it individually one at a time. But just by definition, and my way of looking at it, if it's an eternal principle, it's always true, but people can choose whether or not they want to live it. So law of Moses uh, was a was a practice, not a principle? Which law are you referring to? Uh, the, eye for an eye, the commandments? tooth for the Ten Commandments. Uh, that would take some explaining, probably. Um, yeah, I understand that. That was a law. I don't know. That's not an eternal principle to me. Right. It's a law. At okay. the time, okay. it was a okay. it was a secular law. Right. So, right. Um, but just because something's a law doesn't make it an eternal principle. Okay. And the Ten Commandments too is a substitute. You know, law. There was a higher law revealed to Moses, and then when he came down and saw the condition of the people and how wicked they were, he he destroyed that higher law. Went back up and got the Ten Commandments. The first set of the laws that he got were written by the finger of the Lord. The second set, the Ten Commandments, were written by his hand. Okay. So this this makes me a bit curious now as to your beliefs about Jesus in the New Testament times. There, with the Da Vinci Code out, there are people who speculate that, that Jesus may have been married. Mm-hmm. So I wonder whether you guys have a view on that, and even more broadly, whether he may have practiced plural marriage. Okay, yeah. Uh, Yes, uh, my husband and I wrote, uh, the very first book that we wrote was called Jesus Was Married. And we do believe that he was married. In fact, we did take it another step further, and we believe that he had more than one wife. Um, Mary, Martha, Mary Magdalene. And we believed also that there was a posterity there. And it's interesting now, since the Da Vinci Code, that there have been other Bible scholars coming out and saying um, that they do believe that that Christ was married. For example, he was a rabbi. He was referred to with that title. And at that time, it was a requirement for rabbis to be married. Uh, and there's in the book that we wrote, there's um, uh, uh, scholars that existed and were contemporaries of Christ that had reference to that. There's one scripture, um, an older scripture, that says, and king's daughters were among his honorable wives. So we feel like there's sufficient evidence to show that, yes, indeed, he was married and had a posterity. This program has been a production of Mormon Stories Podcast. To comment on this episode or to peruse the archives of past episodes, please visit us online at mormonstories.org. Also, please consider supporting Mormon Stories Podcast by making a contribution today or by voting for this episode at dig.com and sustained.org. Thanks again for listening.